This is Hawaii Rising, a podcast from the Hawaii People's Fund. I'm Suyuno Amos. Just me today. Today's conversation is with Lahela Peressa and Kekaio Kalani Naone from Uluhaha Loa, founded and led by Kanaka Hawaii. Uluhahaloa envisions Hawaii's economic, social health, and well-being restored in the next generation through an active connection to traditional Hawaiian practices, values, and lifestyles. Their Haloa Circle is a 12-week program that seeks to educate and challenge Native Hawaiians to eat their traditional ancestral food, Haloa Kalo. Here's our interview with Lahela and Keikai from August. Okay, so today we are speaking with Kekai and Lahela from Uluha Haloa. And would you both just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about how Uluha Haloa came to be? Hi, my name is Lahela, and I am from Ma'ili, White and I, Lualuale, on Oahu. Aloha, my name is Kekai. And I am from Kaneohe, but currently living in Hilo, Hawaii. Um, Uluhaha Loa started technically um, with the Haloa Challenge back in 2014 as a student at Kamehameha School's Kapalama campus um, for a senior project. I um, had this question that was, if you are what you eat... Who are you if you feed your na'au ai Hawaii? So with that thought, I um, embarked on a 90-day Haloa challenge with two of my classmates um, that we boarded together with. And then a few others joined in that I wasn't boarding with. And Kikai was that friend that was with me from the beginning. And so got to see what it was like for a 17-year-old um to make that change and to give up Western starches and take on Kalo, Uala, Ulu um, for a strict 90-day challenge. Um, and in doing so, we got to um, we got to travel across Kapai Aina to different islands, learn different farmers, um, and it was a really great experience. The documentary never got finished, and life went on. (laughs) Um, And in the past year and a half, maybe, um, you know, I I started wanting to reconnect with that native food and to have it be a staple in my life again. Um, And so I talked to Kekai about starting a challenge um, and having him be a, a guest speaker with his with his background in teaching um, to come and teach a class that I was running a, a circle for, a hollow circle. And then maybe a few days after that class, I was like, okay, I need you to help me fix this and make it better. And then it became Uluhahaloa. Um, and I'll let Kekai kind of explain where that name comes from and why we kind of chose to call it that. Yeah, so Lahela started doing a kind of just circle with a group of her friends, people that she knew, um, just as a way to start it. And she asked me to come and 
talk at a class and share a little bit about a chant that we use for Haloa called Kapuka Haloa that actually comes from the Kumulipo. And after that class, we were talking about getting a little bit more serious um, with what we were doing and starting a nonprofit. And um, so she asked me if I could come up with a name for it. And the first thing that came to my mind um, was that I don't need to make a name for it. The, the chant already gave us the name. And so in the chant, in one of the lines, it says, um, Uluha ha loa o kalau ha loa. And that's where we got our name Uluhaha Loa from. It refers to the growing of the stalk so that it can be healthy, so that the leaves can emerge. And our main idea um, for wanting to name it Uluhaha Loa was that the stalk is what provides life for the future kalo. So most times people are interested in the kalo, the corm itself, or the leaves for luau. Um, but without that huli, that stem, you can't replant the kalo to grow again. Um, so to us, that was kind of the, the kind of overlooked but most important part of the kalo. And we imagined the work that we do in these circles being the thing that connects the past into the future. So we have, um, you know, farmers, when they harvest, they always have extra huli because the kalo, as it grows, it, it creates baby plants. You can replant the huli, you can replant the oha, and so we wanted to act as that bridge from the ancestral connections, the way people used to eat, the way people used to understand um, their food and customs into the future, into now. That's such a beautiful image. Thank you for explaining the, the meaning of the name. Um, can you explain what a Haloa circle is? Uh, what is it that your participants sort of go through together? And what's the impact that you've seen on, on those people? So a Haloa circle is a group um, and we meet exclusively once a week um, and we kind of go on this journey together and it's a journey about food, about reconnecting to the past, but also planning for the future. Um, and so in the past, I've had circles with primarily um females um or well i guess one circle was all women um my second circle was half and half um and it was the the impact is pretty is pretty evident within the first i'd say within the first couple weeks to the first month um and by the end of the second circle, everyone in that circle had a board in stone. Um, by the, actually, you know what that circle was? Primarily men, now that I look back on it. Um, three boys, one girl. Um, but, and then even um, the first circle, I think almost all of them ended up with a board in stone. And when you look at it that way, like you're, you're buying these cooking utensils because that's what a papaku'i'ai and a pohaku'i'ai are um, with the intention of like, okay, this is an investment, whether you buy it or you make it. It's extremely, it's not, it's not a cooking spoon that you can buy at Macy's. It is, um, 
it's something that takes a little extra time and care to make. And if you don't know how to make it, then you're supporting someone here on this island or on your island or in, in Hawaii. You're supporting these local farmers who grow taro. You're supporting these local woodworkers who make the boards. You're, support, you're supporting these local stonemakers that make stones. And then, um, and that's not a requirement of the circle. It's just something that kind of happens. Like by midway through the circle, you're like, I'm tired of buying kalo for, a like I'm tired of spending a hundred bucks a week on kalo from the freezer section at my grocery store. I want something more sustainable. I want to be able to eat this. I want to feel better about it. Um, I want it to be more affordable. I think one thing that was really hard for a lot of participants is sourcing the kalo itself um, because there it's not it's not like a, a normal grocery item you kind of have to get out of your comfort zone and go seek that that food um, and if you're and once you try this challenge within the first couple weeks if you're doing it accordingly and you're eating kalo you're gonna learn that you don't like certain varieties that come from the farmer's market because they're Chinese taro. Um, you want something native, you want something starchy, you want something that fills you up and isn't, um, isn't too ulika. And ulika is overripe. Um, and that's kind of what a lot of the Chinese variety ends up being. Um, so a circle is where we meet once a week. And we kind of go back and forth. We have discussion questions. We have a curriculum um, that's created prior to you starting. So from the first day of your 90 days, Kekai and I have mapped out the entire 90 days, the entire 12-week program. And we know what it is that you're going to be learning. And we'll take you across um, different islands, different styles of ku'i which is to pound kalo, different varieties, how to identify them, and and more. Like it just it completely changes your way of looking at food and your relationship with the food itself, with farmers, with the people at your table, because you're changing this um, your main staple foods. Yeah, um, I would just add to that and say that when the program first when Lahela first reinstated the program um it was very much kind of let's eat kalo and talk about our feelings um in a way like how are we feeling about it and and that was one of the things that I had brought um when she asked me to help I was like okay but what are they learning and I had to like bring in the whole teacher side and be like what's your CLOs what are your PLOs like how are we measuring this kind of stuff and um, from there, we started to think about, okay, what are our resources? You know, how can we, it's good to eat kalo and, you know, definitely tracking how you feel during doing it um, is super important to the process, but we wanted them to get something more out of it. And, um, and like Nahela said, as we've gone through it, we've learned a lot. We've changed a lot of things. And one of the most important things that we found right off the bat from the first or second circle is that people don't want to eat poi every single day. You don't want to feel restricted as to, okay, this is the only way I can consume it. And so a lot of our focus recently has been on um, 
recipe building. And that's one of the assignments that we've incorporated into our upcoming program that we're going to be starting on September 22nd is in the, we have two recipes um, in the beginning, within the first four weeks, I think it is, your task of creating a recipe. And then in the last, I think it's the 10th or 11th week, you have to make one more to bring to our ho'ike at the end to kind of show what you've learned out of the kalo. Um, because within the kalo itself, there are different parts of the kalo. We have the starch, and then the outer layers where the starch starts to turn into sugar. And they're all usable for different things. And um, Lahela mentioned, you know, one of the things that I personally struggled with was the only place that I could find kalo that was affordable was the farmer's market. And it was the Chinese variety. And I didn't really care for the taste. I love haloa. Um, but that one, I had to learn that I had to prepare it in different ways because it was overripe. Um, it didn't have the same starch content that is preferred when you're kuiing. It was a little bit more sugary. It was a little bit more sweet. And so after trying to just eat it as kalopa'a or poi, um, that's when I decided to experiment with it. And I think that's one of the beneficial things of this program is that you learn about the different varieties, but then you learn about how you like them best prepared. Yeah, it sounds like a really transformative experience to go through. And um, I'm curious to hear more of your personal experiences or experiences you've seen in participants of kind of what that transformation entails, um, how it really impacts daily life. And I also would just love to hear about, you know, some of the, your favorite like creative ways that you've discovered of eating hollow. Yeah, I'll take this one. Um, so for me, like Lahela mentioned, I was not in the Haloa challenge when I was in high school. Um, I was a really great support. I was like, girl, you eat your kalo, I'm going to have some bread. Um, and that, that was kind of our thing. But it kind of, you know, it exposed us, it exposed me at least to what that looked like and what that entailed. And I was actually in, in the, we kind of did like a, a soft haloa circle, if you will. Um, with our last round, there was only like four of us. Um, so it was very intimate. But it really makes you kind of reconnect with what you're eating. And that's kind of a general thing to say, but, um, you know, you have to plan your life around it. And for Hawaiians, eating is such a sacred act, right? When you go to someone's house, you have to eat. When there's parties, there's always lots of food and you better take some home to be respectful. And so it's really, it really makes you focus more and prioritize your food and what you're eating and where it comes from. You can't, I mean, maybe one day you can go to McDonald's and get a Kahlo burger or something. But right now, um, you kind of have to actively plan what you're eating. When are you going to prepare your food? Because it takes a while um, to prepare the Kahlo. You have to cook it and clean it. And then thinking about what state it's going to be in for your recipe. Is it going to be Kahlo Pa'a? Are you going to kui it into poi and use it that way? Um, so I think it brings a lot of the focus back onto your own personal health and thinking um, more uh, intentively as to what you'll be eating rather than just thinking, okay, I'm hungry, let me go pick something up. One of the most uh, awesome transformations that I saw was actually during our last circle. And one of our participants, um, she used it as a way to kind of reconnect with her children, right? Because she would be cleaning her kalo and she would um, kui on Sunday 
And from just them being there, they were interested and they wanted to learn how to. And then they kind of turned it into a fun family activity for them to all do and engage in together. And so that was really nice to see when she says, oh, my kids cooked this for me this week. And they kind of argue about who gets to kuli, who gets to clean the kalo. And so um, I think we are focusing on the participant during the duration of the program. But from that person being in the program in our Holoa circle, it really does affect outwardly into their families and into their community. Even myself at my job, I would be eating kalo for lunch. You know, I'd have all my different recipes I'd make. So much so that my boss and my coworkers were like, can you show us how? And so we had a food demonstration one day where I was like, okay, we're going to make kalo crab cakes today at work, you know, and, and we had a whole cooking session so that, because everyone was so interested that they could then also take part in the experience. They weren't participants in the Haloa circle, but they were beneficiaries of that group being held. It's kind of like a, a concept of the, of the name itself, Ulu Ha Haloa, and the, the Ha being the stem um, and what you plant into the ground, it doesn't just feed you one time. It's going to feed you multiple times. And depending on how well you plant, how well you malama, how well you, how well you take care of it, your relationship with Haloa kind of determines how many offshoots you get. And if like you have plenty oha, little bit oha, if you have good leaves, if your kalo is more of a kormi kalo, but just that concept that this isn't something that just stops right where it's at. It's something that you do carry with you. Um, and especially when I see participants getting their own board and their own stone, I know that that's something that's not something that was provided by us that's going to sit on their shelf. They went and they bought it or they went and they made it and they use it on a regular basis. Otherwise, why would they get that utensil for cooking? Um, and it's uh, even I, I can say maybe 60 percent of all previous participants have asked for Kahlo, for me to source their Kahlo still. Um, so it's that, that um, their relationship with the farmer isn't direct, um, but it does keep food on that farmer's table and it does keep the money in our economy in the small businesses, in the small local farmers. Um, it's really cool to hear you describe the, I guess, the whole chain of impacts here. Um, and I'm curious from your vantage point here of helping people reconnect with Kahlo, um, what you've learned about, I guess, like the state of Kahlo farming in Hawaii, um, where you see it going, any changes you've noticed over the years. Um, and I guess what you would like to see in the future for, for Kahlo. So this one is a fun one for me. Kekai knows how passionate I am about the planting of Kahlo. Um, <laughs> if we're, if we're consuming it, it has to grow. Um, and so the, the, the previous challenges I've kind of sourced from one farmer, um, or farmer's family, the Kanoas, um, Auntie Gladys and Uncle Isaac Kanoa over in Kia'anae, Maui. Um, and 
occasionally I've gone through um, Uncle Daniel Anthony and his Kahana Kahlo that they've been growing. Um, and then he has a few other farmers that he sources from. Um, and so the way I see it is because, and we'll use Auntie Gladys and Uncle Isaac as the example because they were my primary source. They are pushing 70 or so, maybe a little past 70. They have one nephew that is going to continue to farm the way they farm. And the kalo they grow is called moi. And it is a spectacular, starchy kalo. It does need to be kuid hot. So that can factor in. That's a separate side note. Um, but when it comes down to it, um, once Auntie Gladys and Uncle Isaac pass, they will only have their nephew to carry on the Kahlo farming practice the way that they the way that they do it. So uh, my goal for Uluhaha Loa is as we are able to continue to branch out and grow, um, not only in Kahlo consumption, but also in Kahlo farming, I would like to eventually get out there and learn, um, set up work days. I've been talking to a few people about getting um, getting some lo'i plots for our organization to use so that we can continue to keep that practice going. Um, but as far as like the, the history of farming in Hawaii, has, as you can imagine, um, been a downward slope as, um, as other things get built. As capitalistic America continues to grow in this illegally occupied state, there is less and less water, less and less land, and less and less kalo farmers, if you can fathom, because they're not making as much money. Um, so one thing that we carry, I like to think, and, and especially Kekai in this regard, um, and it's something we learned from our kumu in a way, was when we find that farmer who's going to source us, we're going to pay them more than their asking rate because we want them to continue to grow for us. We want them to continue to grow good kalo. We want to be able to tell them like, hey, this was kind of ulika this time, but no pressure. I still want to buy. Can you just harvest a couple months early? Um, and just having that, like, to be that close with your farmer is the goal for Uluhahaloa. Um, and it should be for everybody within their kitchen. You know, you should know where your food is coming from, um, especially something you eat every day. Um, so I do, I do see the future of farming kalo in, in Hawaii more attainable if we get more people eating kalo because um, once you have that ono for it and once you have that um, that craving and that desire then you'll go out of your way to either farm it yourself because it's much much cheaper or support your local farmer because the kalo is that much better. And so speaking of getting more people to eat kalo, um, I wonder if you could just uh, speak about you know, how, how people 
whether they join the circle or not, how people can get involved in, you know, get, get, uh, Kahlo to start to be something they eat more regularly. And also who is the circle, um, a good program for? Yeah. Um, so our circle is primarily targeted towards native Hawaiians, um, being that Kahlo is not just an ancestral food for us, but Kahlo is recognized as the first Hawaiian and ancestor to all Hawaiians. Um, and we believe that the connection starts there, right, with our own people eating it. Because if, um, you know, we look at the demographics and we think about it, who are the main people that are farming Kahlo is Hawaiians. Um, who are the main people that are eating Kahlo is mostly Hawaiians. And um, actually, uh, something that we have in the works um, that I was actually in Oahu for last weekend was that a part of our fundraising um, initiative is that we're creating a, a Kahlo cookbook. So with the recipes that we've gathered from participants and from our own trial and experiments, um, we've been able to create a recipe of cookbooks uh, or, yeah, We've been able to create a cookbook filled with recipes um, that we're hoping to release by the end of the year so that people, even if you're not in the circle, you have a little bit more of an idea of what you can do with your kalo. And hopefully they're things that you've never imagined before. Some of them are vintage recipes, as I call them, that we found in really old cookbooks. Um, and some are brand new recipes that have been tried, you know, shared out with the community one of the ones that I, I don't like to say created, but one of the ones that Kahlo inspired me to make was um, I had a batch of sour poi and it was a little bit too sour for my liking. So I was like, okay, what do I do with this? And I don't know what it was, but I said, we're going to make cake. I'm going to make a chocolate cake and it's going to be made with sour poi. And so I, I got it. I, I just tried the recipe. I was like, well, I've made box cake before, so I know what the consistency should be. Um, I found a homemade cake recipe. I was like, okay, we'll substitute water with poi. We'll just see how this comes out. And it came out really good. Everyone loved it. They ate it up. I've been asked to make it a few more times. Um, and I was like, no, I'll just give you the recipe for it so you can make it yourself. So that's a, a recipe that uh, you can incorporate into your life so that you can share out with other people. Um, so that's one of the things that we've been diligently working on. Um, we've tried poi katsu and using it as breading for when frying things. We've done the crab cakes. We have some awesome desserts, um, just a variety of things, whatever you think, can I make this, but use kalo in some type of way? That's our real goal. And we're really looking more towards not necessarily substitutions of, okay, in my beef stew, I'll use kalo instead of potato. That's a really great start. Don't get me wrong. Everyone starts somewhere. But we're kind of looking at, okay, how do I substitute kalo or poi for something where the recipe does not even call for something, you know, similar whatsoever? And it really just starts with experimenting, trial and error, and, you know, just just growing as you go. Um, even with the, the fried kalo, uh, what was it? It was chicken, fried chicken. I was like, I'm just going to dip my chicken into some poi and put flour on it and fry it, and we'll just see what happens. And, you know, sometimes there's happy accidents. They work out really well. Sometimes it could be a lot better, but you still eat it and you still mahalo the kalo. 
that sounds like a very fun and Ono research process. Um, yeah, I would love to hear more. What, what's been the most surprising recipe that has come out of this? Poi cocktails. Poi cocktails. Yeah. And so that was <laughs> one of the recipes that I found in a cookbook that my grandma gave me. And it's, the recipe is one cup of poi with one cup of milk with one cup of ice cream. You put it in a blender, vanilla ice cream, put it in sugar. a blender, sugar, cinnamon or nutmeg. And then the additional ingredient, which makes it so much more ono, is a quarter cup of red wine. So it can be kid-friendly or it can be adult-friendly too. Um, but it with the wine, it tastes so much better. And you would think like, oh, want like wine and ice cream and poi, it sounds kind of iffy. I don't so know what good. it is, but something in there, that combination, if you don't like red wine, I swear you will like it in the poi cocktail. <laughs> it tastes like just juice and it's sweet and it's good. And, you know, that's a good way to trick kids into eating their poi if they're not necessarily into it. They're like, okay, we're having poi cocktails or poi milkshakes, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that has been one of the most surprising recipes. And I found that and me and Lahel are on different islands. So I was like, okay, hey, next time we come home, we got to make a huge batch and everyone has to try it. And it was a hit. Everyone loved it. And we had to keep the blender going all night because it was just so good. Oh, that sounds so awesome. Um, I guess maybe uh, last thing on my mind is just, you know, um, what is your kind of vision for either the future of the Ulu Ha project, the Haloa circles, or more broadly, um, you know, the, the growing and consumption of Kalo in Hawaii. Well, I know something that Lahela has always talked about is, and we don't know how or through what this will take place, but um, more schools need to offer Kalo or Poi as um, a part of its lunch plan. Right, some schools have lots of land that they could easily farm kalo on and supply to their campuses or others the resources to be able to have kalo for lunch instead of pasta or rice. Um, and I think it just starts small steps to make big changes. And I think that's a very much our motto for our um, our program is that we affect the individual and they affect five to ten more people. And it spirals in that way. Um, I definitely see us hopefully one day soon in the near future acquiring land so that we can have school groups come and we can educate them about um, kui and about kalo and get them interested in it from a young age. So my vision for Uluhaha Loa, like Keikai said, um, you know, big like I have very many, um, I have very many dreams for this, for this nonprofit. Um, and it's just a matter of timelines and how far off those dreams are. So I know that that one is maybe a projected goal of being able to do meal plans for schools or have like a contract with different, um, different education programs, different schools, different, um, different opportunities for children. 
And whether that be like we're hosting a hollow a circle curriculum at um at the middle school level or at the high school level to kind of get their feet wet then because that's when it really took me and it took Kikai. Like that's when we got our first taste and all of the things that we know right now are because we were, we started at the Kui club in school as kids and something resonated with us. Like there was something about it that made us keep coming um, and whether it was our kumu, whether it was just reconnecting with the ancestral food itself, with Haloa, the first Hawaiian man, um, it's just something I think that more um, more children of Hawaii, more Native Hawaiian children, um, should get a should get a taste of before they hit adulthood, so that they can kind of build that foundation and they have that that um that sense of identity so they're not wondering who am i as a hawaiian they know um another good question that was posed to me when i was creating the hollow challenge back in 2014 was um was when i was like i don't want to i was talking to my kumu and i was like i don't want to like do like this if you are what you eat who are you if you feed your na'o ai hawaii um it's she asked well when you cook rice do you cook rice because you are practicing your culture or do you cook rice because you're hungry and that blew my mind i was like i cook rice because i'm hungry and every house has a rice pot so you can always cook rice She's like, well, it's the same thing for pounding kalo. You don't pound kalo because you want to practice your culture. You pound kalo, you kui kalo, you grow kalo, you malama kalo because you're hungry. You're hungry for that thing. Not because you're trying to be a Hawaiian. Like that's just who you are and who are you when you feed yourself the food of this place. Then it kind of just takes you deeper. Like I'm not, I'm not Hawaiian because I consume poi. I'm Hawaiian because because Haloa is my ancestor. I'm Hawaiian because I come from Haloa because I can trace my genealogy back to the Kumulipo and my Kumulipo tells me that I come from Haloa. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. I it's crazy to think that, you know, this little club that we were involved in in high school and then at, it, it gave us that spark and that taste for it. And that is something that now eight years later has bloomed into us starting a, a nonprofit centered around that very same thing. And so I definitely agree it's that those younger experiences, um, they really shape us and it might take us a while to get back to that. But that is the goal of Uluha Haloa. Um, just like the kalo takes eight to 12 months to grow. It might take you some time. You're not going to see results tomorrow, but down the line, you'll reflect on it and you'll come back to it. And one of um, our participants in a previous circle, actually Auntie Sunny um, and myself actually, but she, she had shared her story and I thought it was so awesome that um, one day she had poi on her table and she opened it and it was sour and she smelt it and it reminded her of her grandmother 
right? And she's because she always remembered her grandma having that smell of poi on the counter, and that kind of thing that connects you back to those before you, right? And it triggers something within you. And we really want the future generations to have that type of trigger. And for me, it was my papa with his poi and. He'd be like, okay, get my poi. And then we'd open the lid. And as a kid, I'd be like, ooh, the smell and the bubbles. And he'd have us mix it in for him. And, um, you know, just looking at my my nieces that are all very young right now, um, and some of the ones that might not be able to remember, we don't know if, if they'll have that same memories, right, when they're children of smelling that poi as a child so that when they're an adult or in their teens, that's something that can trigger them. And so we really just want to expose everyone to it as early as possible so that they have something that can trigger them. If it's in that very moment and they make that change, or if it's later on down the line, they have something that, that is their, their catalyst that they can start to grow out of. Um, I think we're wrapping up on our time here, but um, if there's any last thoughts or last comments that either of you wanted to share before we close... Um, I also just want to say super thankful, super thankful for HPF for giving us the opportunity to help other Native Hawaiians kind of get this experience. Even if we didn't get it, we'd still run the circle, but it wouldn't, um, we wouldn't be able to provide them all with that, with that food and actually get to enjoy doing it together um and you know my freezer is constantly stocked with at least 150 pounds of kalo and I don't think it's ever gonna be empty until I have a lo'i that's producing enough kalo for this um for these circles to take place um Another goal I just want to throw out there is to be able to run the circle with different islands um, and kind of go a little broader. Right now, um, it worked out perfectly that our participants are in um, Hilo and Oahu because it makes it a little bit easier for distribution. Um, But a goal is to reach every Hawaiian not just the ones um, we're close to, but all over. Yes, definitely. Reaching Hawaiians on Maui and Molokai and Kauai and as far as the continent to wherever they may be. Um, and I just want to add that if if you didn't have the opportunity to be a participant in this round, the spots filled up within a day. We were extremely surprised. Um, we have not had that much of a high turnout in the past. Um, And if you don't get the opportunity to join our next circle happening in January, reach out to us on Instagram. We're always more than willing to help anyone who wants to start this journey on their own. You don't necessarily have to be a participant of our program to be beneficiaries of what we want to achieve. Um, Because really, we want to help everyone who wants this. So we can send you recipes. We can send you tips and tricks. If you're on our island, you can come for a kui day. I'll make sure you wash your hands really, really well. Um, You know, that kind of thing. We just really want everyone to benefit from what we perceive we have benefited a lot from. And just the community that you build all throughout it too, even with 
past participants, every now and again, we'll still send each other pictures from old group texts of like, oh, look what I had for dinner tonight, you know. Um, it's just really great to connect to other people who also want to connect to Haloa. Awesome. I think that what you're both doing is so cool and so impactful. Um, you can just sense how much it's rippling out into people's lives and in the community and the whole like food system chain. So mahalo for sharing this all with us today. It's been great. Yeah, mahalo to you both. Thank you. And thank you for having us. Hawaii Rising is a podcast from the Hawaii People's Fund produced by me and me with additional support from Mickey. Our theme music is Revolutionary from the band Ukla the Mock, written and sung by Mickey Hui Hui. A big thank you to our community supporters and to you, our audience, for listening. Ahui ho! Oh.